when Chris got when Chris started praying, I got up like I normally do and went to come forward. And Courtney and I met at the steps, and I was like, "Oh yeah, you're singing," and um, and I'm glad she met me there. And I went and sat back down. You know, if you've been here, if if, if you're visiting with us, welcome. If you're not, you know I'm. As I get older, I kind of turned into a crybaby, and we actually were talking about it yesterday at home and laughing about how much I just cry about everything anymore. And um, so when we were singing, Death Was Arrested, I was still holding JoJo. JoJo's my five-year-old. And uh, there's that line in the song when it says, darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost, but then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. Death was arrested. That's when my life, and I was holding JoJo, and I, I couldn't sing, right? Like, and I was just kind of hearing people singing, and I was thinking the words, and I was, you know, like I said, I cry about everything anymore. And if you know JoJo, she, I'm holding her. She's got her head here. She puts her hands right here, and she pushes her head. I'm shaking her face. She says, are you crying? <laughs> so then I was laughing. It is Resurrection Sunday, Amen. And what a privilege it is uh, to, to gather, not just today, um, but every Sunday when we gather to celebrate the reality that the grave was empty, uh, that death was defeated. Um, but it's, if we're honest, it's, today hits a little different, right? And we've, and we've kind of touched on this leading up to this week. And I actually had somebody ask me downstairs, brought a service, I passed him along, he said, okay, so I got a question. I said, yeah, and he said, it's like, today you're Super Bowl and I, I don't know if he knows I love football, and that was a good analogy or not, but, but if there is a Sunday that the church would regard as the Super Bowl, it's today. Because everything that you claim to believe as a follower of Jesus Christ hinges upon the fact that the grave was empty. Because if the grave is not empty, you and I are dead in our sins. And that means we are condemned before a holy, sovereign, righteous God who created the universe and everything in it. So we gather together on what we could rightly call our Super Bowl. You know, someone once said that peace is a bridge. And on the two sides of that bridge are truth and righteousness. You must have truth and righteousness if you are going to have peace. Peace is the reason why we've gathered here today, really. And the truth is, you may have chose for whatever reason to gather with us today, not even realizing that peace is the reason that we have gathered. As we've alluded to, it's the reason ultimately why we gather every Sunday Each and every one of us desires peace in our lives. As true as that is, there's a little bit of an issue because many people disagree greatly on how it is that peace is achieved or acquired. Some folks hold the position that peace comes only when war is not present. Now, I want to say quickly, I read a... a, I didn't... directly include this, but as much as I say, some folks hold the the opinion that that peace is only uh, possible when war is not present. In some of my studying this week, I was reading that like it's some uh, over the course of human history, somewhere like 85% of all of human history, there has been at least one war going on across the globe. That, if that's true, and you know, there's statistics, and they didn't get into all those to support that, then the reality is that, that peace, by and large, isn't going to be possible. Because for the majority of the existence of humanity, war has been present. For others, peace is experienced when circumstances are a certain way. And for others, yet, peace might be predicated upon material things. Many people find their peace if we're willing to be honest this morning, in their possessions or in their ability to just go and get. That's why we work our fingers to the bone. So I can go and get. So I can provide something that in and of itself is good and right. But at what cost? Are we really achieving peace with our ability to just buy and accumulate and save and stack up? 
In the same way, sometimes for folks, peace comes with keeping up with the Joneses. We all understand that phrase, right? The reality that we need a a bigger house, we need a newer car, we need a greener lawn. Peace comes when we look around and we feel like we fit in. Or we're like those whose company we're within. But I would ask you this morning, is this really what peace is? And if so, does this mean that peace is limited only to those who are able to acquire more or change their circumstances or bring an end to war across the globe? I sure hope not. Because if peace is limited to the people with the ability to do the aforementioned things, then the truth is most of us will lack peace all of our lives. We'll never have enough. We'll never be able to end a global war. We can't even end the the, the difficult dynamics and the strife and the conflict inside our own homes, let alone across the globe. And if we don't have the ability to get more, and that's the means whereby peace comes, then the, the, the message, the reality is a very bleak one. I would submit to you, if we are unable to achieve peace ourselves, which I believe is the case, this would mean that we cannot truly experience peace in this life. And that is a terrible existence. Because you long for peace. You desire peace in your life. I don't have to ask you. I don't have to know you to know that. We all long for peace. And so if the reality of our lives is in this world, peace will only come as we can cultivate it, then we're in trouble and our existence is not one to be desired. There has to be more. There has to be more. And I would submit to you this morning that there is. And so as we prepare to look into God's word together, I want to make a disclaimer as we begin. And I've, in, in, a similar, in, in a smaller fashion, I've already made it, but I want to make a disclaimer. I don't know everybody here this morning. It's just a reality of the situation, right? I, I cannot know everyone who is here this morning. And that means that I cannot know all of the situations and circumstances that are present with all of the people who are here this morning. Nor can I know the motives by which you chose to gather together with us this morning. But here's what I can know. For some reason, you believed it was necessary to be here today. I don't know what that reason is for you. It may be because you're here every Sunday. It may be because, well, today's Easter, and you go to church on Easter. Whatever your reason is, I want you to know I'm going to operate today that you being here is because you need peace in your life. Maybe you know you need it, and maybe in some fashion you've you've begun to achieve that peace by trusting Christ for salvation. But you understand that the Christian life is a process of growing to be more like Jesus, whereby the peace of God is experienced more in your life. Maybe for some of you, you're here today, and if you're willing to admit and, and, and be honest, you know your life entirely lacks peace. From the moment you wake up in the morning to the time you close your eyes at night, your life is chaos. And in some cases, it may be our own fault. In some cases, it's not. Sometimes we live in the midst of chaos where peace is lacking because of things that we have no control over. Sometimes, again, our chaos is a lack of making wise, de- cho- wise decisions or choices or, or following what we know to be true or right. But nonetheless, what you need today is peace. I want you to understand something today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is where mankind finds the peace that they desperately need and so often seek after. That's part of the reason I would submit this morning that you need peace. You lack peace in some capacity in your life if you're here today. 
You see, the resurrection brings that, like, let's, again, I want to be honest for just a second. I, I don't want to be crass. I don't want to offend anybody. But everybody understands and knows that there are folks who go to church on Easter who maybe don't regularly attend church. And the reason that I say that is not to single anybody out, to not call anybody out. Again, I don't know everybody's circumstances and situations. But why is it that we choose? We say, we got to get to church on Easter. I didn't feel like going last week. You know, I'd had a long week, and so I stayed home and got some rest, so I didn't go to church last week, but I know I got to get to church on Easter. Here is the reason why. Because some way, somehow, in some shape or form, you know and understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key to your life. That's, and and I'm, not, I'm not, this is not name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. Okay, we're not manipulating the word of God this morning. I'm telling you, the only hope you have to peace in your life is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. My burden is light and my yoke is easy. His invitation to come to him and find rest or to find the peace that you long for is predicated upon the fact that just weeks after he would invite people to peace, he would be crucified, but three days later he would rise. The reality of the word of God is everything that Jesus offered and everything that Jesus said hinged upon whether or not he overcame death when he was crucified. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you today that death has been defeated and the grave has been overcome and Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world through his death and subsequent resurrection. And whatever you lack in your life, peace, rest, joy, it's found in Jesus. Jesus is what you need this morning. I don't know what brought you to Dale Bible Church. But at the end of the day, I will tell you what you will leave Dale Bible Church with and understanding that Jesus is what you most desperately need. resurrection of Jesus Christ is where mankind, you and I, looks to see. That's where we find the authority of Jesus Christ over death and despair. Jesus is the, excuse me, the authority over chaos. That's why he can offer peace. You see, you've got to understand this morning, when we consider the resurrection, when we consider what we call Easter Sunday, this day today, the demonstration of the empty grave is the proof that there was absolutely no inadequacy in Jesus. If there was any fault whatsoever to be found within Jesus, he would have not been qualified to absorb the wrath of God on the cross. And when he died and they put him in the tomb, he would have stayed there. He would have been just like every other human being who was born into sin. This is why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. But there was no inadequacy in Jesus And the father raising him from the grave was the proof. It was the authentication of Jesus' life, death, and burial as the son of God and the once and for all sacrificial offering of the father. We know Jesus was who he claimed to be because the grave was empty. And as we look back over the last seven, eight weeks when we started this final words of Jesus and we started in John 13 and each week we just looked at One saying of Jesus, what became abundantly clear if we were paying attention and following along was Jesus knew his mission. Jesus knew the task that was set before him. It was to reverse the curse by being the sacrifice that would accomplish the redemption of mankind through him absorbing the wrath of the Father. And this is the good news. That he knew his task and that he was faithful to fulfill it. And he fulfilled it through laying down his life. But if there's no resurrection, then there's no good news because he's still dead in the grave. And as we've alluded to, then we're still dead in our sins. So we look at the resurrection and understand that Jesus was who he said he was. And this changes everything. 
that he was who he said he was and that he had accomplished, or as we saw Friday night, finished the work that the Father had for him. And it is through this work and the vindication of the Father to Jesus that you and I will find our peace. And so I want to read our text together, John chapter 20. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. So again, Pastor Aaron, the call to worship this morning was Jesus appearing to to Mary Magdalene. And uh, after he appears to Mary Magdalene, 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 whichever you prefer, uh, we read beginning in verse 19 that on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so it was the day that the tomb was discovered empty, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. And see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray together. Father, we see right there in the end of John chapter 20, the reality, God, the plight that all humanity faces, that apart from Jesus, we're dead. And John writing for us, he says, the things that have been recorded have been recorded so that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God and that knowing he is the Son of God, you may have life, eternal life in his name. Father, help us to see this big picture this morning. The purpose of the resurrection isn't God just so that we can gather together on Sundays and we can look into a big thick book and we can talk about Jesus and we can find the fuel and encouragement that we need to get through our lives. The purpose of your word, God, that you have preserved for thousands of years and that has been handed down to us that we might have it, ultimately, God, that we might know you, is so that we might know who Jesus was, and by knowing who Jesus was and is, God, we might have life. And so I pray this morning, as we look into your word and we consider the offering of Jesus of peace to us, God, I pray that you would help us to see that the crux of the empty grave is the satisfaction of the Father for Jesus having reversed the curse whereby we can be made right, whereby we can have life. The resurrection, as we celebrate this morning, God, is all about life. And so help us today to look to Jesus and see Jesus for who he is the Son of God, and that in seeing him for who he is, we might have life in his name. And God, we're going to be careful to give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Three times in our text this morning, Jesus, while interacting with his disciples, he exhorts them to have peace in their lives. Three times. The phrase, peace be with you, is not because the disciples can end war, It's not because they could cure world hunger or change their circumstances. 
the charge to have peace in their lives is based upon what Jesus has accomplished. In other words, Jesus is saying, because I am who I am and because I've done what I've done, peace be with you. And so I want to make three observations about peace in the lives of mankind this morning. Three observations about peace. The first observation is this. Peace costs a great price. Peace costs a great price. Again, notice verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands. He showed them his side. And then the Bible tells us that the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. So this first appearance of three to the disciples of Jesus takes place in a home where the disciples have gathered. And most likely they've gathered together to mourn the death of Jesus. And their mourning points to the fact that Jesus had truly died. We got to get that out of the way. Okay. Any of y'all ever heard of the swoon theory? This ridiculous idea that Jesus didn't really die that he was just kind of in a comatose state hanging on the cross. And when they put him in the tomb, the cool air of the early morning awoken him from his coma. And then Jesus went on about his business and appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and the rest of the disciples. This is ridiculous nonsense. Jesus was dead hanging on the cross. And the disciples mourned the fact that Jesus had been killed. But it also points to the fact that if he had died and he was now alive, he was victorious. He had overcome the grave. He had done what nobody before him was capable of doing. And it is interesting, we notice here that the disciples have gathered, it says, out of fear of the Jews. They're in a home upstairs where the doors are locked. There's still a great fear of the Jewish leaders on the part of the disciples. These leaders and the Roman soldiers had killed Jesus and they'd proven to be unkind to anyone who opposed the formal religion of Judaism. Of you strayed from Judaism at all, you were a threat to the religious leaders. And here the disciples sitting around in what amounts to be disbelief at the events of what had transpired, they're gathered together. Their disbelief stems, well, first from the fact that they had hung their hats on the claims of Jesus. And they committed everything. They gave up everything. We read about the disciples. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the Bible tells us stuff like they left their nets and they followed him. They left their families and they followed him. And now they're gathered in this room and the man that they had followed, they watched be killed. Now they're despaired because as much as they understand and lack understanding, the body was removed from the grave where Jesus had been laying. And in the midst of this scene, we don't know exactly what the disciples are doing in the other room, but we do in the upper room, but we do know that in the midst of this scene, John tells us that suddenly Jesus was standing in their midst. And the first thing that Jesus says to them is, peace be with you. And this makes sense if we think about it, because you can think back to the number of times that Jesus appeared to his disciples throughout the gospel. And, and, and you think of when he walked on water to them. And the Bible tells us that they were frightened. They believed that they were seeing a ghost. And so when Jesus appears to his disciples here, not dead, but alive, the first thing that he says to them is, peace be with you. And this greeting of peace was not all that uncommon amongst the people of this day. But this rang a little different. It was common to encounter people in the market or, or, or at the, the, the temple, in the complex of the temple, and somebody to, to extend peace to you. But this rang a little different coming from Jesus, and this simply is because of the things that he had already told them and the offer that he had already made to bring them peace, for example, in John 14 and in John 16. Of course, he had coupled this teaching of bringing peace with the teaching of what? His death and his resurrection. And lo and behold, now it makes sense. 
The disciples are seated in the room and Jesus appears and says, peace be with you. Oh, by the way, guys, the peace that I told you I come to bring to you, the peace of the Father, the joy of the Father, you can now have it fully. Why? Because I was dead, but now I'm alive. So this exhortation to peace, it hits a little bit different. The disciples are understanding. We see all throughout the New Testament where they did not understand until after the fact. The peace that he offered was through his death and his resurrection. And this peace could be offered no other way. Consider this cost. There's no other means of true peace for mankind. When he had said this, peace to you, he pointed directly to the reality and the foundation of their peace. He said, look at my hands. Look at my side here. The reality that Jesus is demonstrating as he meets with his disciples is that they can have peace, but it came at a great cost. The Son of God literally had been murdered so that mankind, people, you and I could have peace. He shows them his hands and his side. Why? The Apostle Paul would write for us later in Romans chapter 3. That the wages of sin, excuse me, in Romans chapter 6, that the wages of sin is death. And that means that the earnings of an individual's sin is death. And Christ swallowed death and its sting when he laid down his life to pay the debt that you and I could not pay. Because we are not perfect and because we are not perfect, we cannot satisfy the perfect demands of a holy God. So one who was perfect had to pay that price. And Jesus says in demonstrating that he paid the price, look at my hands and look at my side. The disciples, they looked upon Jesus and you know what they saw? The reality of death. Jesus had died. But they also saw life. The same marks that brought death bring life. The same marks that bring death and bring life bring peace. The pierced side of Jesus demonstrates for us that he was truly dead. That's why it's significant and that's added into our gospel accounts. Because when Jesus was stabbed, and the Bible tells us that blood and water mixed flow out, it demonstrates he's dead. It's a demonstration that he truly has died. And he now bears the marks of peace and life. The cost for the peace of God, honestly, is unmeasurable. When you talk about peace... The true peace of God being extended to mankind and the price that it cost, you and I cannot measure it. You and I will never be able to quantify the reality that the, cost, that the price of the cost for peace was that a perfect God would pour out his wrath upon the head of his son, also perfectly God and perfectly man, for the purpose of redemption. We cannot quantify this. And that's why in the end of our account we're going to look at, Jesus says to Thomas, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. Because in our minds and in our ability, we can look at the word of God and we can understand in a sense that it costs the son of God for our redemption to be possible. But we cannot truly quantify the price. The perfect spotless son of God was also the Lamb of God. And he was slain. The word slain in the New Testament generally is rendered to kill violently. Jesus was violently killed, but he overcame death. And because the grave could not hold him, we have been offered peace at this price. And don't miss the response 
that John records for us from the disciples. It says they were glad. They were glad when they saw the Lord. Their entire disposition changed. And the fear that described and defined them prior to Jesus appearing was dispelled. And what dispelled their fear? Peace. Peace of who? God. By what means? The price being paid. The death of Jesus. And so when Christ appears to his disciples here in this locked room, we understand that he brought not only peace, but, but joy to the disciples. They were glad. They rejoiced in the reality that Jesus had resurrected, just as he said, and now they understood. And so the peace that mankind, you and I, desperately long for, it came at a great price. But you know, there's a reality of when that peace is experienced in our lives, it affects our lives. We just see right there in, in verse 21, uh, or verse 20, excuse me, where it says, the disciples, they understood Jesus was with them. They knew he died. They knew he was alive. And it says they were glad. Their fear was dispelled. The peace of God changes your life when you understand it. And one of the things that the peace of God does is it compels followers of Jesus to be faithful. When you understand the realities of that cost, that they're immeasurable, and that you could never pay them, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much work you do. Listen, even if you could cure world hunger, and even if you could bring an end to war once and for all, it would not be enough to satisfy the wrath of God. You can do nothing to appease God. And when you truly understand that, and you begin to recognize and reconcile the fact that you can do nothing to please the holy God with the fact that he did everything to please himself for the purpose of our redemption, the only appropriate response is faithfulness. So when you understand the peace of God, it compels you to be faithful to Christ. Now, I want, you, I want to clarify something. I did not say that our faithfulness to Christ is our means of peace. Okay? Because you can't be faithful enough to earn the peace of God. It's not possible. The peace that we have, or our, our, excuse me, the faithfulness that we have is the outflow of the peace that we have from God. Okay, we don't earn the peace of God. It's given to us, and then we live in light of the fact that we have it. And our faithfulness to Jesus is that evidence. That's how we know we have the peace of God, okay? It's not the source of our having the peace of God. What is the source? Well, ad nauseum here, right? What was it? It was Jesus. It was the Christ and his willingness to die an excruciating death for the purpose of satisfying God and thereby offering peace to mankind. And so in the second section here in verse 21 and 23, we see this again. Jesus says to his disciples, peace be with you. So he once again exhorts them to have this peace in their lives, but, but this time as he exhorts them to peace, we see the reality that there's now a response of obedience that's coming with that peace. He says, peace be with you, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. They are to go out just as the Father has sent him. He says, and when he had said this, when he compels them to faithfulness or to, to action, or excuse me, when he exhorts them, he calls them to, to faithfulness, to action, he says, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this breathing upon the disciples by Jesus is not an act of Jesus imparting the Holy Spirit to his disciples. So they're not receiving the Holy Spirit when Jesus breathes and says to the disciples, receive it. 
And this is very, very easily understood in the fact that it would completely contradict the message of Jesus if they were receiving the Holy Spirit now when he told them, go to Jerusalem right before he ascended. He said, go to Jerusalem and do what? Wait for the promised Holy Spirit, and then you will be my witnesses. Okay? So when Jesus is, is speaking to this reality where he says, where the Bible says he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, he's pointing ahead. He's pointing ahead to the fact that the Holy Spirit will come upon them and the consequence of it coming upon them is that they will be his witnesses. That once the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they will understand now's when you're being sent. It's kind of like when you get a job, but after you get the job, you don't immediately start the job. You go for training. Okay, and so that's, a, that's a, an idea of kind of like what's happening here is where Jesus is teaching the disciples again. He's exhorting them to peace, and then he says, the Father sent me, I'm sending you, but wait. Because what you need to be faithful to the task that I'm calling you to has not yet come. When I'm gone, the Holy Spirit will come, and we've talked about this in recent weeks. And so we must recognize that again, what? Jesus is exhorting his disciples to have peace in their lives. And part of that peace is being commissioned by Jesus, just as Jesus was commissioned by the Father. If we're going to gather together, and we're going to claim to have the peace of God through Christ, then we must take claim of the commission to go as Christ has sent us. You see, far too often, again, if we're honest, if we try to break this down a little bit, we say we believe in Jesus, our lives lack peace, and we're disobedient to what God's word teaches. Do we really believe if the fruit of belief is not there and disobedience reigns in our lives? When we understand the peace, it's kind of like Friday night, Pastor Aaron referenced Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved through faith, right? This is not of your own doing, okay? Because if you could earn it, you would boast. This is not by your works. And a lot of people will, will quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I find a lot less people know what verse 10 says. And Paul says, you're saved by grace through faith, not by your own works because you would boast, In verse 10, though, he says, we are the workmanship of God created to do good works before the foundations of the world. You see, the works that Paul's referencing to, they're not the means of your peace, but they're the evidence of it. And so we talk about this reality of having peace in our lives. And and brothers and sisters, if I can be honest, the statistics that we can encounter in terms of the world and in terms of the church, when we start talking about joy and peace, they're very similar. How can it be that people who identify with Jesus Christ, as he says, identifying with me, truly believing in me, I give you my peace, why is it so similar in the church as it is outside of the church? Well, I think it's because We've not regarded salvation as a means of understanding the price that was paid, the, 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 the realities of being reconciled to God, and understanding in that reconciliation, we've been commissioned. We've been called to be faithful. I don't, it doesn't matter. I, I, I'm not concerned with whether or not you say you're a Christian. I can say anything, right? I can say I can dunk a basketball. I used to be able to, but I can't anymore. I can say I know how to fly an airplane. Anybody want to go somewhere? The proof that I can dunk a basketball is dunking a basketball. The proof that I can fly an airplane is getting it to the necessary speed to get it off the ground and to keep it in the air until I reach my destination and land it back on the ground safely. And every one of us understands this reality. But I cannot understand in the church why we say we believe in Jesus, we live with disregard for his word and complete abandonment of what he's called us to, and then we say, well, you know what, my life, I lack joy. 
I lack peace. I don't have the things that Jesus offered, so maybe Jesus isn't who he said he is. Maybe Jesus didn't really rise from the grave. Maybe, maybe Jesus really didn't defeat death because if he can't give me the joy and the peace that he's promised, can he really give me the life that he's promised? But the problem is we're accusing Jesus when we ought to be accusing ourselves. We ought to be at home looking in the mirror and we say, what does God's word say? What has God called us to? The peace of God compels us to faithfulness. The reality of a relationship with God is not a get, 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 get. The truth is it's a give, 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 give. How different would the church look if the people who identify as the hands and feet of Jesus were actually the hands and feet of Jesus? The peace of God compels us to faithfulness. Do you know and understand this morning the peace of God? Are you faithful? Are you faithful to his word and to what it's called us to? Because we've been commissioned. Our salvation, if you would claim to be a believer this morning, I'm going to let you in on something that maybe you know, maybe you don't. Your salvation is not about you. And I know that's blunt. And I don't want to be harsh. Your salvation is about the glory of the Father. And when we understand that our salvation is about the glory of the Father, the peace that he offers us in that salvation, then compels us to be faithful. Do you think I think the word of God teaches that faithfulness matters? Maybe we lack peace in our lives, not because God is not faithful. Maybe it's because we're unfaithful. And Jesus is commissioning his disciples. And again, just for clarification, he's not telling the disciples in verse 23 that they have the ability to forgive sins. Only Jesus has the ability to forgive sins, then and now, okay? And you throw that out there. Jesus is the only one able to forgive sins. But what Jesus is admonishing the disciples here to is the understanding that when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they are going to be identified as a community of people who are identified with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, because you've been with me, because you walked with me, because you learned from me, because you followed me, because you've seen me, and because I'm commissioning you, as this church grows, your testimony as you observe people's lives and as they come around matters. He literally says, you have the ability as you gather with these people because you know truth to confirm or deny that they know truth. And you think of the reality of Acts chapter 8, right? When they're going out and they're healing people and they're proclaiming the gospel. And I believe it was Simon the magician who comes to them and he sees he's got the ability to do all these miracles. And they ask, and, 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 and Simon says to them, you know, how much will it cost for me to be able to do what you do? And you know, in the original language, the statement that the disciples make to Simon the magician is literally to heck with you and your money. Except he doesn't use the word heck, and because some of our kids are up here this morning, we're going to dumb it down a little bit. You see, the reality is, is Jesus is not saying, go out and do this, and you now have this ability, and you give it to other people. No, he's saying you're going to band together based upon what is true and what is right, And when others come into your midst, you're going to recognize whether or not they also know what is true and what is right. This is very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name. I'm sorry, that's the wrong passage. It's very similar to where Peter professes Jesus to be the Christ. And Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, my father who is in heaven has revealed this to you, not flesh and blood. On the basis of this profession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whatever you bind in heaven is loosed in heaven and whatever you bind on earth is loosed in earth. It's the same reality. They don't have the ability to forgive sins, but they're the people who God has raised up, who's prepared and he's taught and he's sent out to say, yep, you're in line. The faithfulness to the truth of God that we've been called to is evident in your life. So there's this community of faith. They have the ability to recognize whether or not others are in or out of this community. The peace of God is recognizable in the community of Christ. It should be. In fact, we might be tempted to say, well, maybe it's not evident. 
then it's probably not there because it should be evident. And that peace of God is recognized as faithfulness. Dr. Anderson, the president of the the Bible college that Aaron Kelly and myself graduated from, I I remember one time in chapel he said, um, faithfulness is not spoken. Faithfulness is observed. If you have to tell people you're faithful for them to know you're faithful, you're not faithful. People know you're faithful when they watch and they see faithfulness. And when they watch and they see faithfulness in the lives of those who claim to have the peace of Christ, God is glorified and peace is experienced. Guys, my heart breaks for the reality of those of us And I'm not saying this because this is Easter. I would say this any other Sunday, and I've said forms of this many Sundays. My heart breaks over the reality that we gather together on Sunday mornings, we call ourselves Christians, and when we walk out of these doors, we have no time, interest, concern, or cause for Jesus. I'm sorry, but that's not a follower of Jesus. That's a works-based salvation. Well, as long as I go to church... As long as I read my Bible, we, go, we leave this building and we go out in the community not understanding that this isn't the church, we are the church. And when we go out into the community and we look just like the community, our lives lack peace, our lives lack joy, our lives lack faithfulness, who's going to look at us and think, boy, they really love Jesus. Jesus has really made a difference in their lives. The short answer is people are not going to. And when we understand the peace of God and the price that was necessary for that peace to be offered and we believe in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, the only right response is faithfulness. Notice I didn't say perfection because we can't be faithful on this side of eternity. That's what makes the presence of Jesus someday so beautiful. One day we will be perfect. But as long as we're here, and we know when we have the peace of God, and we know that we have that, then we, we seek and we strive to be faithful. And the last thing, and perhaps the most important this morning, is the reality that peace comes by faith in the resurrected Christ. And you might be like, well, yeah, duh. I mean, it is Easter. But notice in verse 24, now we've moved to the second appearing of Jesus to his disciples. And this time he's interacting with a man named Thomas. We probably know him better as Doubting Thomas for obvious reasons, right? He's saying, unless I touch the holes myself, I will never believe. And so the only setting here, or the only difference in our setting here, is it's eight days later, so the way that would be calculated is it's literally a week. It's next Sunday. And this time, as the disciples have gathered, Thomas is with them. You see, Thomas was very clear of what would be necessary in order to believe that Jesus was actually alive. Can we just pause for a second and, and just contemplate or consider the, the goal of Thomas? You know what, disciples? I know I should believe you because you guys have seen him and we walked together and we followed Jesus and he said this was going to happen and I know you're telling me you've seen him in the heaven, but I will not believe. What Thomas is saying is I will create my own standards of how it is I will have the peace of God. Thomas is saying it doesn't matter that the reality is that Jesus has called us to follow him trusting that he is who he said he is, that he was going to do the things that he said he was going to do, and that they were actually accomplished when he died and then rose to life. No, that's not good enough for me. Thomas says, I need to touch the holes. He was clear of what was necessary for him to believe. And so, one week later, from his previous experience, what does the Bible tell us? It tells us that Jesus did what only Jesus can do. Once again, the disciples were gathered in a locked room, and Jesus appears to them, and he greets them the exact same way he did before. And so, again, we're working down here through 24. 
Getting down 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside. Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came. He stood among them and said, what? Peace be with you. So here it is. We see it again. Once, once again, the reality, Jesus is doing what only Jesus can do. And I love we talked last week when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. You got these many as 600 men coming into the garden. And the Bible tells us that Jesus approached them. That Jesus said to these men, whom do you seek? You see a little bit of the same reality here with Thomas. Jesus appears in the room that's locked. And he says, peace be with you. Hey, Thomas. I'm going to tell you right now, y'all ever been in a situation where you knew the attention was on you and you got a little uncomfortable? Could you imagine being Thomas? And the resurrected Son of God was in your midst, and he turned his attention to you, and he said, Hey, Thomas. And the best part for me is Jesus says, Hey, Thomas. And he says, Put your hand right here. Touch the hole. Thomas, put your hand right here. Touch the hole in my side where my body was pierced. And he called Thomas to faith in the resurrected Jesus. And this calling of faith in the resurrected Jesus is the crux of the matter of Jesus. And when Jesus does what only Jesus can do by demonstrating that he was dead but he's alive, what did Thomas say? He looked at the resurrected Savior and he said, my Lord and my God. This was an acknowledgement of Thomas that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. It was the proof in the pudding. Unless I see, now you see Thomas. And so what was true? What did Thomas believe when he exclaimed, my Lord and my God? He believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He believed that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He believed that Jesus did in fact defeat death by overcoming the grave. But I want us to understand something. Jesus is not going to appear to you and show you the holes in his side and in his hands and invite you to feel them. Because the reality is, is Jesus' appearance to Thomas really is a rebuke. Because the reality for Thomas is, Thomas should have believed without seeing. He'd been with Jesus. He'd been with the disciples. He knew the testimony. And when they said, Jesus is alive, Thomas didn't believe. But he had everything that he needed to believe. He had everything that he needed. And so as Jesus interacts with Thomas and he grants his request, he does so rebukingly. By telling Thomas, those who believe without seeing are the ones who will truly be blessed. Yes, Thomas, you see, and now you believe. But the essence of faith is what? Believing without seeing. You see, peace comes by faith. Peace comes when we truly believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Peace, excuse me, peace comes when we understand that it's been offered at the highest of prices. The writer of Hebrews tells us what about faith? That it's the assurance of things not yet seen. A Bible historian, a Bible historian once said, I want my faith in Jesus to be so secure that I'll swing out over hell on a rotten cornstalk. That's faith. That's faith. And this is what the Bible calls mankind to. Yep. The word of God says, I came that you may have joy, that you have it abundantly. Jesus said, I came that you could have peace. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of these things are offered to mankind. 
But I want you to understand something. They're only received one way. You want the peace of God? Then believe in Jesus by faith. You want the joy that Jesus promised? Then you must believe in Jesus by faith. And, and I need to make a disclaimer because that's the world we live in now. I'm not saying that Jesus is a holy ATM. Oh, I want this, so I believe in Jesus and he's going to give it to me. No, it's not what I'm telling you this morning. I'm telling you that when you believe in the word of God as the word of God has been revealed to us and you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, the Bible promises that you will have life. That the peace that your life lacks is offered in Jesus, right? What's the point? What's the point of all of this? And we're, we're coming to a close, so stick with me. I, tr- I mean, if you've been here, if you come regularly, you know I like to talk, right? And so you know Easter, we're probably going to go a little bit long. What's the point of all this? The resurrection, the peace of God, the crucifixion, faith, miracles, teachings, all of it. What's the point? What's the point? John says this. All of these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I want you to understand something. None of what has transpired historically matters any more than you sitting here physically this morning if you have not believed in Jesus. You can go to church on Easter, you can go to church on Christmas, you can go to church on every Sunday in between. And if you have not believed in Jesus for your salvation, the Bible is very clear, you are dead in your sins. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a feel-good story. In fact, it's an awful story. But it is the good news But it's not ultimately about us. It's not so we can interact with God's word and feel good or feel better about ourselves. Not doing things that are good, right? Not not doing some of the things that we know that we should probably do as people who say they're believers. Not even saying that you believe in Jesus. The purpose of the gospel of John and the word of God as a whole It's to communicate to you that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in the Son of God, you will have eternal life. And if you view the Word of God for any other purpose and for any other means, I have no problem telling you this morning, you have an improper view of God's Word. And the reason I want you to know that today is not because I want you to feel bad. It's not because I want, you to, shame, I want to shame you. It's because the reality of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion here and the resurrection here is that it's all a matter of life and death. That's what's at stake today. You can leave here and you can feel good and you can be glad you went to church on Easter. But if you don't believe in Jesus, you're dead in your sin. And that means you're accountable to a holy God. The word of God is very clear. The gospel of John was written so that you would know. And that in knowing you would believe and in believing you would have eternal life. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the son of God? Do you believe that a man was dead and really, truly, physically, bodily rose from the grave three days later? And before you say yes, consider some of the realities. Are you faithful? Do you desire Jesus? Do you desire to know him and to live for his glory You see, the reality of the resurrection this morning is that it is the victory over death. That's why we celebrate on Sundays, because the resurrection took place on a Sunday, and it's the victory over death. And so I want to ask another question. If you say you believe in Christ, do you live your life 
as though you have the victory over death? Or do you live as though you're still dead? Because Jesus overcame the grave, not so we could stay dead, but so we could be made alive. So that we could have joy and we could have peace in Christ's name. Do you have the peace of God? That is the desire of God and his word for us today. That the peace of God would be with us because we believe in Jesus and in his name we have life.